again this morning to the Old Testament, to 1 Kings chapter 16. 1 Kings chapter 16. Now this is uh, the second part of a short series, it won't be the last one, uh, a short series on notorious women of the Bible. We've already done notable women of the Bible, uh, so this is notorious women of the Bible. John and I was talking during the week, and if we're really, really up to date, we would probably call it bad babes of the Bible, <laughs> but uh, I don't think we would... Uh, and Johnny said to me, I thought it was funny, he says, well, uh, who are we going to put in the front of it then? <laughs> Any volunteers? <laughs> well, we'll have to think long and hard about that, Johnny. We might need a conscript for that. <laughs> you can choose. <laughs> oh, dear. All right, 1 Kings then, chapter 16, and reading from verse 30. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And it came to pass, as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took as wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of Sidonians, the Sidonians. And he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden image, or an Asherah, made a wooden image. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And then over in 2 Kings, uh, sorry, over in 1 Kings, I beg your pardon, uh, 21. And just one verse here for the moment. Verse 25, 1 Kings 21. But there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. And he behaved very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. And because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. No woman was more misnamed, if I could use that term, than Jezebel. Her name means chaste, but there was not one chaste bone in all of her body. Jezebel was the epitome of wickedness. And after thousands of years, her name, her very name, has become a byword for infamy and evil. Her father was Ethbaal, the king of uh, the Sidonians. And Ethbaal means son of Baal, and that gives you an idea uh, of the depths of this pagan worship that he enjoyed. Uh, Baal was the chief Phoenician Canaanite deity. It was their sun god. And Asherah was the female equivalent. And that was, in fact, their Venus, if you will. And both these gods were worshipped in the most licentious, 
perverted manner. They even had temple prostitutes to honor their fertility rites. And historians tells us that they went as far as child sacrifice. And so you can be sure that the worship of Baal and Asherah uh, was an evil, wicked practice that God called an abomination in his sight. And Jezebel was a dedicated devotee. And she was married to Ahab, the seventh king of Israel. And this fulfilled her desire and gave her opportunity to fill the whole land of Israel uh, with the worship of these demonic deities. And she has often been called the Lady Macbeth of Scripture. Those of you who follow uh, Shakespeare will know what an evil, conniving, wicked person Macbeth's wife was. And sadly and tragically uh, for Israel, Ahab was a very willing participant uh, in this vile religion, and he gave opportunity and help in order to build all kinds of temples and groves all over the land to these awful pagan gods. Two people played an important role in the life of Ahab. One obviously was his wife Jezebel, who continually stirred him up. And the other was Elijah the Tishbite, the great prophet of God. And we'll see the interplay between these two uh, as we go on in our study this morning. No two people could be more different than uh, Jezebel and, of course, Elijah. One was godly, and one was absolutely wicked and evil. One was a prophet, one was a pagan. One served the living God, the other was a servant of Satan. Old Matthew Henry said of them, Ahab was as bad a king as the world was ever plagued with, and Elijah as good a prophet as the church was ever blessed with. Now the marriage of Ahab and Jezebel brought the nation of Israel to a whole new level of evil and wickedness, even worse than had ever been before. And it was pretty bad before this. In fact, Ahab's father was a wicked, evil idolater. But Ahab not only succeeded his father, Amri, but he superseded him uh, in wickedness. So much so, we just read, he did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings who were ever before him. And even though this was Israel's worst king, but at that time God raised up one of Israel's greatest prophets. And in chapter 17, which we'll not really read because of time, uh, Elijah calls for a three-year drought. And uh, having called for that three-year drought, uh, then he goes into hiding, as it were. You remember how he spent some time at the brook Kerith, and he was fed there by the ravens. And then after that, he had to go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon. And there a widow woman sustained him. And it's interesting that Sidon was the very place uh, where this... Uh, Princess Jezebel came from. And that was the very place that God chose to hide him because 
He knew that, of course, that Ahab and Jezebel and, and, and the, the prophets they have would be after him because obviously they were going to blame him for this drought, which they did. And uh, so God uh, hid, them, hid him safely from them for uh, over three years. And uh, then in chapter 18, if we just come into chapter 18, it says, And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. And so Elijah went to present himself to Ahab, and there was a severe famine in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was in charge of his house. Now this Obadiah is not the prophet Obadiah. Obadiah was a fairly popular name. Uh, but this is a steward uh, over the household of Ahab. And so he called him. Now Ahab says, feared the Lord greatly. This is one of those who had not bowed the knee to Baal, one of the 7,000. And here was a good man in a bad place. And many a good man is in a bad place. But even though he was working for this wicked, evil king, yet he did not bow the knee to Baal. He kept himself right before God. He was a good man in a bad place. Kind of, the, I suppose, the equivalent of that in the New Testament would be Paul talked about those in Rome who were saints in Caesar's household and uh, who kept themselves pure in the midst of a sewer, as it were. And so here is this good man, Obadiah. It says, Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, for, it was, for so it was while Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord that Obadiah had taken 100 prophets and hidden them 52 a cave, and fed them with bread and water. And so we can see here that the depths of wickedness of this woman Jezebel, not content with spreading her evil throughout the land, but anybody that was any threat to her gods, she wanted to destroy. And particularly, she would have loved to destroy Elijah, but God had hidden him away. And so the next thing she took her anger out against was the, the prophets. And you see that uh, she began to massacre them. But this good man, Obadiah, took his opportunity uh, with the influence that he had and the position he held to hide away a hundred of God's prophets. And Ahab said to Obadiah, uh, Go into the land, to all the springs of water, to all the brooks. Perhaps we may find grass to keep the horses and mules alive so that we will not have to kill any livestock. And so they divided the land between them to explore it. Ahab went one way by himself and Obadiah went another way by himself. Now as Obadiah was on his way, suddenly Elijah met him and he recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is that you, my Lord Elijah? And that's an indicator of the godliness of this man and the fear of God that he had that as soon as he saw Elijah, whom he instantly recognized, that he uh, honored him immediately and said, Is that you, my Lord Elijah? Again, old Matthew Henry uh, said this about what he just said. I think this is beautiful. He said, as he had, speaking of Obadiah, as he had shown the tenderness of a father to the sons of the prophets, so he showed the reverence of a son to his father, to this father of the prophets. Let me read that again. As he had shown the tenderness of a father to the sons of the prophets, so he showed the reverence of a son to this father of the prophets. And so 
He answered him and said, It is I. Go tell your master, Elijah is here. And so he said, How have I sinned that you are delivering your servant into the hands of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to hunt for you. And when they said he is not here, he took an oath from the kingdom or nation that they could not find him. And now you say, Go tell your master, Elijah is here. And it shall come to pass as soon as I am gone from you that the Spirit of the Lord will carry you to a place I do not know, so that when I go and tell Ahab he cannot find you, he will kill me. But I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Was it not reported to my Lord what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid one hundred men of the Lord's prophets, fifty to a cave, and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, Go tell your master Elijah's here, he will kill me. Then Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely present myself to him today. And so Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is that Jew, O troubler of Israel? Well, that's an indication of his ungodliness and his heart. Obadiah said, Is that Jew, my Lord Elijah? This character said, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. And then, of course, which we'll not read, you know how, of course, then they went into that great uh, confrontation on Mount Carmel uh, with the prophets of Baal and how that the fire of God came down from heaven and burned up the sacrifice. Then in verse 40 of that chapter, And Elijah said to them, those who were there watching, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let them escape. And so they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. Now it would seem that the 400 prophets of uh, Asherah was not included in this here uh, because they come into the story a little bit later on where they, where they entice uh, Ahab to go and fight King Ben-Hadad of Syria, which was a major, major mistake. In fact, it cost him his life. But anyway, then Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there's a sound of abundance of rain. And then how you know the rain came and he outran the chariots of Ahab and got to Jezreel first. I'm skipping through some of this because of time. And then chapter 19. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Isn't it a shame he didn't tell her all that the God of Israel had done through Elijah? You know, they're constantly blaming this man. You know, and trying to ignore the God of Israel who was empowering this man. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and he ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So he went from the north of the country right down to the south into the wilderness because of this threat from this wicked, evil woman, Jezebel. And when he got there, if you would read on in that story, uh, of course you would find that the Lord came to him, uh, an angel came 
on two occasions and, and gave him food to eat and said, uh, you have a journey ahead of you. You need some sustenance for this. And he went on this journey from there to Mount Horeb, which is Sinai, Mount Sinai, where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. And he hid himself in a cave there. And how the Lord came and came before him. And he went out to the mouth of the cave. And there was a great storm. And there was earthquake. And there was fire. But God was not in the storm. He was not in the earthquake. He was not in the fire. But he spoke to him in a still small voice. And of course, you remember what he had said. He said it on two occasions. When the Lord says, what are you doing here, Elijah? In verse uh, 14, he says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant and torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. And it shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill. Whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. And then at the end, the uh, last few verses of that chapter is uh, the calling of Elisha, the prophet who would uh, be the next in line to take over as the prophet of Israel. And then uh, when you come into chapter 20, you'll see that uh, Ahab uh, goes out against, on three occasions, against the uh, uh, king of Syria, Ben-Hadad. And uh, in one of those occasions, uh, a prophet comes to him, an unknown prophet. And he comes to him, and uh, in fact, it's an interesting story, but again, because of time, uh, I'll cut that a little bit short. But if you're to read from verse 35 uh, all the way down there uh, to verse uh, uh, 42, you would see that uh, how God spoke to this prophet and caused him to come to stand before uh, Ahab. Then he said to him, Thus saith the Lord, because you have let slip out of your hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. Now, the reason why he said that was is because Ahab, in defeating this king, had the opportunity to kill him, which is what God had instructed to do. But he didn't do it. Instead, he spared him, made a treaty with him. And so that's why God sends this prophet. And here's the first time he's told his doom. Therefore, your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. So that's the first warning he gets that his life is now in jeopardy and that he will die because of it. And so the king of Israel went to his house sullen and displeased and came to Samaria. So that news... Uh, kind of disturbed him somewhat. It would disturb anybody somewhat, wouldn't it? And then it comes to this interesting thing now with Jezebel in chapter 21. And it came to pass after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel next to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Now this palace in Jezreel was their winter palace. 
sorry, their summer palace, I beg your pardon. This was their summer palace because in Samaria in the heat in the, of the summer, it would be stifling. And so this would be a, a cooler climate for them. And apparently, again, historians tell us, and the Bible confirms this, that this was a magnificent palace that was built, overlaid with ivory in many, many parts of it. And ivory had come from India, had come from Africa and different parts of the world. And so this was a very ostentatious, opulent, magnificent palace that they went there for their summer holidays. And it's in their summer holidays where this all takes place. And so Ahab spoke to Naboth saying, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near next to my house, and for it I will give you a vineyard better than it, for it seems good, or if it seems good to you, I will give you its worth in money. And so looking out of his palace window, he sees this little vineyard that's quite close to the palace, and he has the idea, boy, that would really make a great vegetable garden for my garden parties and for my entertaining that I do in the summertime. And so I'll just go to whoever owns this. I'll find out. I'll go to him and ask him as Naboth, and, and I'll do a deal with him. Now, on the surface, that seems he's being quite reasonable and fair. He says, look, I'll give you a better one than this, and if that doesn't sit, I'll give you what it's worth. Whatever you need, I'll just give, but I really, really want this vineyard of yours. And that seemed on the face of it reasonable. But actually it wasn't, and he knew it wasn't. Remember, this is the king of Israel. He knows God's law. Even though he's breaking the laws, he knows God's law. And so Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give the inheritance of my fathers to you. Now you could take that two ways. You could take that knowing that Ahab Sorry, knowing that Naboth knew Ahab and knew his character would be saying, hey, the Lord forbid that I would give this to you, of all people, you. But I don't think that's the way he said it. I think he was being polite. I think he's being polite to the king. But what he was really saying, if I could paraphrase, uh, he would say, listen, O king, uh, actually, I, I can't do this. And you know I can't do this. Not, not even for you, because this would be against the law of the Lord. I cannot give this inheritance away. And it was against the law of the Lord. It was against the Levitical law. Uh, the only time that land could be sold would be in extenuating circumstances if somebody was so deep in debt that their whole family was going to have to go into slavery. Then they could, under those circumstances, if necessary, and if they were starving to death, sell the land. But even that land in the 50th year whenever it would come along the year of Jubilee, would have to be reverted back to its original owner. That was God's law. And this king knew this. So he wasn't innocent. He knew what he was saying, and he was hoping desperately, because business is business, that this man would yield to this and give him. But here's another good and godly man, another man that hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. And he says, no, I cannot do this, because this would be violating God's law. And Ahab went into his house sullen, and displeased. That's twice I've seen that phrase. He seems to be a kind of a moody character, doesn't he? Black moods. Sullen and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned his face and would eat no food. In other words, he's having a mega sulk. Can you believe it? A big grown man. 
a king of all people. And he can't get this. That he owns ten-twelfths of the whole of Israel, the ten northern tribes. And he wants this little piece of land. He can't get it. And he goes into his house. He loses his appetite. And he lies in his bed with his face towards the wall and a big hump and a grump. What a pathetic, miserable character this is. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so sullen that you eat no food? He said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it pleases you, I will give you another vineyard. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. Then Jezebel, his wife, said to him, You now exercise authority over Israel. If I could put that into again into everyday talk. <clears throat> hey, you're the king of Israel, not him. You're the one with authority, not him. You're the king of Israel. You do whatever you like. Because that's what a pagan king would do, whatever they liked. But he's a king of Israel. He can't do whatever he likes without violating God's laws. And he knows that. So at least he's got some kind of conscience going on here. This is what's killing him. He really, really wants it. He knows he can't have it. Of course, Jezebel has no compunction about anything. This woman has is no conscience of anything whatsoever. Whatever she wants, she'll get by any means fair or foul. And so what happens? Arise, she said, eat food, let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Just leave it to me. Come on, catch yourself on. Lying there like a big lump with your face to the wall. You're the king. You says, this is embarrassed. You must have been embarrassed. I mean, this is a strong, willed, headstrong woman. And to see her husband lying there in a big sulk, it must have been embarrassing for her. So she says, get up, wash your face, eat your food. I'll take care of it. You don't have to do anything. I'll sort this. And sort it she did. And she sent letters and Ahab's name sealed them with his seal and sent the letters to the elders and nobles who were dwelling in the city of Naboth. Now you can't tell me that Ahab, knowing this woman as he did, knew that whatever she was going to do would not be right. And having borrowed his seal, she knew she was, he knew she was up to something that was bad, but he did nothing about it. So she wrote in the letter saying, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth with high honor among the people and seat two men, scoundrels before him, to bear witness against him saying, You have blasphemed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him that he may die. Now interestingly, this is a smart woman. Not only wicked, but she's smart. She knew the laws of the God of Israel too. And she's going to use them in a false way against Naboth. And one of the laws said if, you, if somebody was going to be executed, they would have to have two witnesses at least. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. That was a safeguard, by the way, against one witness being a false accuser and somebody being executed falsely, wrongly, innocently. So it had to be at least two. So she says, go out, I want to get two scoundrels, two liars, just get them. 
Proclaim a fast. Make it sound serious. And then get Naboth, set him up on high, give him this pride of place, as it were, and then drop the bombshell. So that was the plan. And say, you have blasphemed God and the king. Now, isn't it interesting that something similar was done against our Lord Jesus Christ, wasn't it? Do you remember how the the Jews, the religious hierarchy, brought him to Pilate and said, this man blasphemes. Pilate says, well, you've got laws to deal with that, Jewish laws. I'm not a Jew. I want nothing to do with this. Then they said, but this man makes himself to be a king. Well, he had to listen to that, hadn't he? Because that moved from the spiritual into the political. He had to listen to that. Because he was over that region. And if Caesar got to hear there was somebody making themselves a king, he would be displeased. So he had to deal with that. And what did they do? You remember at the Caiaphas, you remember the false mock trial of Jesus before they took him to Pilate? Remember what they did? They get false witnesses to come in. And they get two of them to witness and to lie against the Lord Jesus. And so the devil uses the same plan often. So, you blaspheme God and the king, take him out and stone him that he may die. So the men of the city, the elders, the nobles who were in the inhabitants of the city did as Jezebel had sent to them. Shows you the influence and the power that this woman has got. Ahab is just a puppet. She's the one really pulling the strings in the kingdom. She's the one with the real authority here. He is the big, weak sulk lying in his bed in the corner, his face to the wall. She's the one who figures it out. She's the one who takes action. She is the doer here. She's the one. Of course, he's not, he didn't get off scot-free here because he was as guilty as she was, and God makes sure of that. So, they did as Jezebel had sent to them, as it was written in the letters which she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth with high honor among the people. And two men, scoundrels, came in, sat before him. The scoundrels witnessed against him, saying, against uh, Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth has blasphemed God and the king. Can you imagine how painful and hurtful that must have been to this good and godly man, Naboth, to be accused of blasphemy? And particularly the, the... Can you believe that this woman of all people is going to get this good man accused of blasphemy? Beggars believe, doesn't it? Very hurtful. And so, then they took him outside the city and they stoned him with stones so that he died. And then they sent to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. Actually, in 2 Kings 9.26, it also tells us that not only was he stoned to death, but his sons also. She was making sure there would be nobody in his line could lay claim to that vineyard. She wiped the whole family out. This is a woman who's ruthless, heartless, cruel, wicked, evil. Bad to the bone, as we say. It came to pass when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And so it was when Ahab heard 
Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab got up and went to take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Ah, he's got what he wanted. He's got his vineyard. And he could think to himself, well, I didn't bloody my hands. I didn't do it. I didn't know what she was up to. Well, he could say that all he wanted, but God was going to blame him every bit as much as he blamed his wife. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who lives in Samaria. There he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Have you murdered, have you murdered, and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, In the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. So Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? That's the second time this man has been foretold his imminent death. But at the moment, there's not much change, is there? Have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. He sold his self, he sold his soul to the devil for a piece of land, didn't he? Behold, I will make calamity, I will bring calamity on you, and I will take away your posterity, and will cut off from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, like the house of Bahasha, the son of Ahiah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and made Israel sin. And concerning Jezebel, the Lord also spoke, saying, The dog shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. The dog shall eat whoever belongs to Ahab and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. <clears throat> but there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord, because Jezebel his wife stirred him up, and he behaved very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. And then amazingly, amazingly, holy second, I get this thing fixed. Amazingly, verse 20, so it was when Ahab heard those words that he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his body and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about mourning. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, See how Ahab has humbled himself before me because he has humbled himself before me. I will not bring the calamity in his days, in the days of his son, I will bring the calamity on his house. See how God responds to repentance? Even to a man as bad and as wicked as Ahab? And for his repentance, there was a measure of grace. He wasn't going to escape the death sentence that was on him. But he wasn't going to see what was going to befall his family before he would die first. And so that was a measure of grace to this man. And the only reason he got it was there was a repentance. It's a shame he hadn't repented in the first place earlier before this. And it lets us know about the goodness and the mercy of God that as bad as we were, whenever we repented, God came in mercy to us. And as bad and as low as we could fall, God can still come if we repent in mercy to us.
Then in chapter 22, Micaiah, not Micah the prophet, but Micaiah, another prophet, he comes and he warns Ahab about going against the king of Syria. And if you read the story, you'll see that Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, the southern kingdom, joins forces with Ahab, the northern king, to go and fight against Ben-Hadad, king of Syria. A bad amalgamation, Jehoshaphat should never end to do with this bad man, nearly cost him his life, if you read the story. However, the 400 prophets that had been spared at Carmel, the prophets of Asherah, they entice Ahab. And they give him false prophets and they said, Go, the Lord is with you. You'll win in this battle. And one of them even made two iron horns to say you'll gore the McBulls. I mean, they just made up all kinds of stuff. Sadly, they believed it. But this prophet Micaiah, he comes to him and he tells him the opposite. He comes to him and says, No. Again, I'm cutting this short. In verse uh, twenty. But it's 23. Therefore, look, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets of yours, and the Lord has declared disaster against you. There's the third time God has warned him of his impending death and doom. And you know what? He still goes on. He still goes on. And what happens when they get into the battle? He's being crafty now, he's been warned three times. And things are not going to go well for him. But you know what he does? He disguises himself. He said, Jehoshaphat, he says, when we go into the battle, you keep your kingly attire on. They're really after me. You keep your kingly attire. I'm just going to go in disguise. I just go like an ordinary soldier. And Ben Hadad gave strict warning. He says, just look for the king of Israel. It's the only one we want to deal with today. Just the king of Israel. In fact, Jehoshaphat got captured because of his kingly attire. Almost cost him his life until he showed them who he was. But what happened to Ahab? Well, remember he's standing among the armies of Israel as an ordinary soldier trying to hide here. Now, verse uh, 33. Now the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots, saying, Fight with no, no one small or great, but only with the king of Israel. And so it was when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat that they said to him, Surely this is the king of Israel. Therefore they turned aside to fight against him, and Jehoshaphat cried out. Now it happened when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. But he, listen, now a certain man, drew a bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the joints of his armor. So he said to the driver of his chariot, turn around, take me out of the battle, for I am wounded. What would be the chances? Here he is standing among all the hundreds, if not thousands of soldiers dressed as a soldier. Here is one Assyrian. He takes his bow out and he sees a whole bunch standing over there in the distance and he draws back his bow and he just fires at random. And of all the people it could possibly hit, it hit Ahab. And of all the places it could have hit him, it hit him between his armor. Don't you think God was behind that arrow? I think he was. What seemed a random shot became an arrow that was directed like a missile right to this wicked king Ahab. 
And so he's injured. Turn aside, turn around, take me out of the battle for I'm wounded. And the battle increased that day and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians. Now, you say this in his favor. At least in the heat of the battle, even though he's wounded and he's taken aside, he still stays in his chariot to see how the battle's going to go. But it says, facing the Syrians, and he died at evening. And the blood ran out from the wound onto the floor of the chariot. Then as the sun was going down, a shout went throughout the army saying, every man to his city and every man to his country. In other words, the people of Israel fled. So the king died and was brought to Samaria. And they buried the king in Samaria. Then someone washed his chariots at a pool in Samaria. And the dogs licked up his blood while the harlots bathed according to the word of the Lord which he had spoken. Ah, just as the prophet had foretold. Now we're coming to a close in a few moments. Come with me to Second Kings chapter 9 because we need to find out what happened to Jezebel. Second Kings chapter 9 Elisha, not Elijah, but Elisha now is the main prophet. Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Get yourself ready, take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. Now when you arrive at that place, look there for Yehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshai. Remember this is one of the ones that Elijah uh, had uh, promised and prophesied that he was going to be a king. All right? So here now is the, the commissioning of that call. So he says, take the flask. Sorry. Now when you arrive at the place, look there for Yehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshai, and go in and make him rise up from among his associates. Take him into an inner room. In other words, talk to him privately. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus saith the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee and do not delay. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. And when he arrived, there was captains of the army sitting. And he said, I have a messenger for you, commander. Yehu said, Which one of us? For which one of us? He said, For you, commander. Then he arose and went into the house and he poured the oil on his head and said to him, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord over Israel. You shall strike down the house of Ahab your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, of, the prophets and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off Ahab and all the males in Israel, both bond and free. That was his family. So I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahiah. The dogs shall eat Jezebel on the plot of ground at Jezreel, and there shall be none to bury her. And he opened the door and fled. And then those other generals around Yehu, they uh, hailed him as king, and then he goes out to destroy the whole household of Ahab as the prophet had said. And the first two he kills is Joram and Ahazah, who were two sons of Ahab. 
He's on his way now. He's killed two of his sons. He's on his way now to deal with his wife. And this is where we come to the final part here in verse uh, 30. Now when Yehu had come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. And she put on paint on her eyes and adorned her head and looked through a window. Now, the painting of the eyes was an ancient uh, cosmetic thing that they did in those days. Still doing it today, maybe to a lesser degree. But it was very, very pronounced, very black and pronounced. And it was to enlarge the whole eyes and make the eyes really, really stand out and be very alluring and very attractive, uh, particularly, obviously, to men. And it was especially powdered paint to do this. And they would do it with a little brush of hair or with ivory, and it would be put on. And so she dickied herself up, as we would say. She had all dollied up, put on her best dress, her greatest jewelry, did her eyes up, stood there, looked out the window, knowing that he was coming. Why did she do that? Was she going to try to tempt him? I don't think so. Was she going to try to intimidate him? Perhaps. I mean, this woman has no fear of anybody, certainly no fear of God, no fear of man. This woman would slit your throat in a heartbeat. But she knows this Yehu is coming. She knows that two of her sons are already dead. The word has got back. So she, she knows she's, got, she's dealing with a hard nut here. And so she's presenting the best possible presentation she could make. And at the end of it, she is going to die. Well, she's going to die looking beautiful. That's what she's thinking. Maybe, I don't know. But anyway, here she is. She's all standing at the window waiting. And so, then as Yehu entered at the gate, she said, is it peace, Zimri, murder of your master? Ah, sarcasm, arrogance, intimidation. So you've got to know what she's saying here. Saying, are you coming in peace, Zimri, murder of your master? Zimri was a, a man, I think he was the fifth king of Israel, who had murdered the king before him very treacherously and murdered a whole bunch of people and took the reins of the throne by power and by murder and he only lasted seven days. That's all his reign lasted. So she's kind of being sarcastic and intimidating. Are you coming in peace? Are you, are you going to be like Zimri? You know, you know that treacherous murder of his master? Is that what you're going to come to do? And so here she is, arrogant, clever, Beautiful, all these adjectives she could use. And so what does Yehud do? He doesn't even answer. Doesn't even speak to her. Treats her with the contempt she deserved. And he looked up at the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? So two or three eunuchs looked out at him. Then he said, Throw her down. And so they threw her down. And some of her blood splattered on the wall and on the horses. And she trampled her, and he trampled her underfoot with his chariot and his horses. And when he had gone in, he ate and drank. <laughs> this is a bloodthirsty character too, by the way. This is a bloodthirsty story, isn't it? And when he had gone in, he ate and drank. Then after a while, when he had finished, then he said, Go out, go now, see to this accursed woman, and bury her, for she was a king's daughter. 
So they went to bury her, and they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Because the dogs had eaten her. It's funny that was always left, wasn't it? Palms of the hands, the feet, and the skull. I wonder was it because those were the hands that were quick to shed blood. Those were the feet that were swift to run throughout the whole land and raise up the temples of Baal. That was the skull stripped of all its fleshly beauty. No doubt she was a beautiful woman. And no doubt when she was flung from that wall with her face greatly painted, she looked beautiful. But when all that cosmetic fleshly beauty was stripped away, it revealed an ugly skull. There's nothing nice about a skull, sure there's not. Reminding us that behind all of that facade of beauty and allurement and all of that, there was a mind that was evil and wicked, conniving, a mind that was controlling. And that was always left. Therefore they came back and told him, and he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, On the plot of ground at Jezreel, dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel. And the corpse of Jezebel shall be as refuse on the surface of the field in the plot of Jezreel, so that they shall not say, Here lies Jezebel. Wasn't worth burying what was left. No great stone to mark her passing. No great obelisk to denote this princess, this wife of the king of Israel. Nothing. No mound of earth. Nothing. Wiped away completely and utterly. Just as the prophet of God had said. Let me just close with this. Madeline Murray O'Hare was the founder and for 23 years headed up American Atheists. Life magazine one called her, once named her as the most hated woman in America. She was a hardcore atheist. Her son, John, took over the leadership of American Atheists for nine years after her, even though she was still alive. But her other son, William, got saved, was ordained in the Baptist Church in America. And William said that his mother was truly evil. Truly evil. Not just evil in her atheist ways, but just as a person. Her whole lifestyle behind the scenes was wicked and evil and surrounded herself by evil, wicked people. What's the significance of Madeline Murray O'Hare? Well, she was the woman who took a case to the Supreme Court of America to stop public prayer 
in the schools of America. And she won that case. She was a law graduate, by the way. And she won that case. And it caused untold damage and hurt among the Christian community in America especially and to the society of America as a whole that still rages to this very day. And every and any opportunity to denounce God and the people of God and the things of God, she took it with a vengeance. And that's why William, her son, said that she was a wicked, evil woman surrounding herself by wicked, evil men. And ironically, it was one of those wicked, evil men that murdered her and her other son, John, and their adopted grandchild. And they couldn't find their bodies for a long time until the murderer, who was an employee of hers, finally admitted where they were hidden. And when they dug their remains up, he had cut them in pieces. And that was her ignominious end. Listen, those who shake their fist at the Almighty... Though they may do much damage in this world and though they may go on a long time and though they may not all end up like Jezebel or Madeline Murray O'Hare, but believe you me, a day of judgment will come upon them, whether in this life or in the next life, if there is no repentance. So there's still Jezebels about today. There's still evil, evil people about today who will do all they can against the people of God and the things of God and the very name of God. But our God still reigns. And though they may howl at the moon, <laughs> the moon will keep on shining. <laughs> and this book here, somebody said, is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. And it's still undefeated to this day. And will never be defeated. Amen. So that's notorious woman number two. Do they come any worse than that? I'm not sure that they do. But there's a few more, by the way. And we'll get to those, God willing, in the next couple of weeks or so. Amen. All right. Praise God. Now, Kenneth, you're going to lead us in communion.